This episode was recorded before the catastrophic Turkey-Syria earthquake on February 6th. Conversations may not reflect recent events. Hi, I'm Lina Sergiatar and welcome to Belongings, a podcast where we talk about home and have conversations about the places that create, shape, and sometimes break us. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Belongings. I'm so excited to share my conversation with Amr Jandali with you all today. Amr is just an incredible designer, thoughts leader, dreamer, optimist. He works in social innovation and tirelessly creates different kinds of interventions to support sustainability and sustainable solutions for the future of the planet, the future of the climate. It was just so great to talk to somebody who's deeply rooted in both the present and the future and is connected to his home roots in Syria and New Mexico, as well as his life today in New York City. He's going to share so many practical advice on how we can all become more accountable to the future of the planet, as well as, you know, a lot of information about climate change and sustainability and design and what the impacts of those are. Welcome today. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Amir Jandari is a Syrian-American, New Mexican environmental futurist and social designer currently based in New York City. He studied design for social innovation at the School for Visual Arts. He's an optimist, dreamer, and blooming activist. His passion is people and the realization of a healthy future. Ahmed is CEO and founder of Future Meets Present, a company that designs products, systems, and events that facilitate the emergence of a sustainable future. Future Meets Presence projects include the Bracelet Tote, an innovative wearable tote bag designed to replace single-use plastic bags during an urban commute, and the Marketplace of the Future, a yearly event that brings together 50 eco-conscious startups to represent an immersive snapshot of the sustainable future. Ahmed was named one of Arab America Foundation's 40 Under 40 list. He is an innovator in residence at the Center for Social Innovation and an adjunct professor at Parsons School of Design and John Jay College. Welcome, Amir. <laughs> I love it. I love That's it. Thank great. you. That's a great, great bio. And I'm very, very intrigued and interested to talk to you today about all of these projects that you do. Thanks. Welcome to Belongings. I feel like I belong. That's great. Yes. So, you know, you are our first futurist on the cool. show. So I wanted to start by asking you a question as a futurist. How do mm. you think about the word and the concept of belonging? <sighs> wow. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this project. Just that concept alone is so important. And I think it's become more evident how important that concept for me is over time and over this transition that I've experienced from being a full-time DJ to now being in New York, thinking about climate and design, that long story arc has given me the space to realize how important 
belonging is. And I can get to that properly as we keep talking. But to answer your question, what does belonging mean to a futurist? I mean, you could also answer what belonging means to you. I think just to even take a step back and think about, it was interesting even just hearing you read that bio because, you know, as our careers evolve, our bios evolve too, right? And I was thinking, I was like, oh my gosh, when did I write that? Or did I write, like, how did I, you know, and I think it's a lot more succinct now. There's just, there's, there's a lot there and it's just proof of when you're in your lane and you're focused on your thing and you're just doing so many different things, you hear it all. And I remember different points when just the concept of futurist even came up. And I, yeah, and even just to take a step back, I think we're all kind of futurists. I mean, just human beings in general, we're all, we all detect patterns. We all think about how our current actions are going to affect ourselves and other people around us to some degree in the future, whether it's like indigenous tribes that think seven or eight generations ahead, or whether it's, I probably should go to the bathroom now so that my future self doesn't need to pee in the subway, you know? And that mindset for me has always been really powerful in terms of thinking in the context of environmentalism. So like, what does the future need to look like as it relates to climate science and climate goals? We don't really need to make it up. We know that we have various sectors of the economy that need to be decarbonized is the term, right? Made net zero. Just one brief, brief example. If we know, for example, that up to 70% of the emissions created in New York City come from the energy consumed heating and cooling our buildings and our general building efficiency overall. Then we know that there needs to be breakthrough innovations in the world of making buildings more efficient. So then you get to think who's actually doing that work and what does it look like? Can we envision a future in which those companies are normal? That's how I define environmental futurism. Yeah. And that also indicates to me a space in which more stakeholders are considered than were previously considered and where more people feel like they belong than previously considered. That's so interesting to think about it that way. Yeah, that's cool. I'm I'm here for it. Yeah. This is the first time I really talked it out like that. So <laughs> I'm glad we're recording. We're going to come back to this idea and the concept of we're all futurists because that's something I wanted to ask you about because I think I come at it from a little bit of a different perspective. But my second question is, our typical belongings exercise that we do with our guests. I love it when we have designers on because I don't know how to draw because you know that doesn't matter if you know how to draw or not. Everybody, I believe everybody knows how to draw and everybody is creative. So you are going to draw for us a map of home. You can use whatever tools you want and we'll take a few minutes while you draw. Some people do this in silence. And then I ask questions. Some people like to speak and talk like through the drawing while they draw. That's fine. But you'll have a few minutes to just say to draw. You know, people have done floor, floor plans, maps, diagrams. It can be anything about your future home, your current home, your past. But it's basically the map of home as you define that. Okay. Yeah, I think I, it's like super simple, but I think I got a, I think I got a good start. So tell us about your map of home. Okay. Map of home. It's quite, yeah, it's again, it's quite simple. So for our listeners, we have a very simple page that has an earth on it and three main bright spots. I guess there could be more bright spots, but I just have little areas on the map that are starred and they represent various nodes. Do you know, um, the alchemist? Yes. Paulo Coelho, he has another book called Aleph, mm -hmm. A-L-E-P-H or Aleph, I don't know how you pronounce it, but that book is really awesome and it's about um, the protagonist's journey across the Trans-Siberian Railroad, the only railroad that spans seven time zones. 
And there's points along this journey where the protagonist experiences what they refer to as Aleph points. And I'm thinking of my friend Chelsea now as I talk about this because her and I nerd out about this all the time. And an Aleph point is like a geographical location on the planet where there's just like a super higher vibe related to you. Mm -hmm. Something that's like of significance, something of deeper belonging, perhaps, right? Something of like deeper transcendental belonging. So I have Earth drawn here and then there's four stars on there. These represent different bright spots for me. Las Cruces, New Mexico, where I was born. New York City, where I currently live. And then Syria is around the earth. And it's where my genes are from. My parents and grandparents and great-grandparents all the way down the line come hail from Syria. And then we have another one, which is Saudi. And that's another bright spot at the moment. It also just represents the Middle East in general. A lot of my family lives in Saudi and Dubai and Lebanon. So those are places where I feel a sense of unity, a sense of oneness, and a sense of um, freedom. Different parts of myself are expressed more freely there in these places. But Earth as planet home, where we're all here on spaceship Earth, that's the way I see it. That's really wonderful. And I think that when you talk about like the four bright spots, what's intriguing is that as you move forward in your life, you can add on new bright spots. I love it. So, you know, I'm really excited to share the drawing with our audience. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, going back to this journey of the bright spots and across these kind of stations, can you tell us a little bit, you know, at the beginning you talked about a DJ becoming Mm. um, an environmental designer. You have a journey there of transformation. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey of, you know, where you started and where you are now? Yeah, (laughs) sure. Yeah, it's cool. I feel really lucky in the sense of having a very clear starting point. I think, you know, if you know me, you've heard me probably talk about the the Joker to my Batman, which is plastic bags. It was this documentary, honestly, that I watched and it just shifted the way I thought about everything. It's kind of like one of those moments where maybe like, I mean, and I'll, I'll ask you too, what would you consider to be like one of your first heartbreaks? Something that just made you realize like, wait a minute, what I thought is normal isn't quite normal anymore. Like, I'm I'm actually curious, Lena, like, I think, you know, there's several if I like go back, back, but I remember one clear moment because I was born in the United States and then we moved to Syria when I was 12. So when I was in school, I might've been in fourth grade. I was in elementary school and now I'm aging myself, but Reagan was, <laughs> Reagan was president. Great. And then we ha- there was the bombing of Libya. And I knew I was Arab and I knew I was Muslim, but I never thought that that was a big deal at school. And we were in, we lived in a very small town in upstate New York. So I'm sure I was one of the very few people that was Mm. not, you know, typical in my classroom, but I never felt other. But I remember that day when I came into class, like there were a few boys in the, the class and they said, we bombed you. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And I also like, even when I asked my parents when I went home and they talked about Libya, like, it's not like I felt this connection to Libya. I just knew that we were originally from Syria. And so this idea that like we bombed you, that was, I think, a a moment of understanding that I'm not the same as other everyone else. Hmm. Um, and then a similar moment, you know, many, many moments happened, you know, just a few la- years later when we moved to Aleppo and moved to Halab and I was 12 and I went into seventh grade there and I was very much different, but not understanding why I was so different because people didn't treat me as, you know, Syrian. I was always like the American girl. Mm-hmm. And so kind of like that struggle as well happened in different ways too. 
Thanks for sharing. It's so important, like, right, just when you offer that space of discussing a heartbreak or a dissonance, a moment of dissonance, I teach um, part-time at John Jay College as well. I mean, you know, you mentioned that. And that's the the theme of the course is heartbreak to breakthrough. It's social entrepreneurship is what we teach. We teach social entrepreneurship, but we really spend a good amount of time at the beginning just on this concept of permission. Just do you have permission to feel frustrated about something, to feel heartbroken about something? And does that galvanize you to move forward and keep pulling on that thread and finding your intervention point within that stakeholder network, that system. So just that dissonance is so important. And and I think, you know, now just to answer your question, it was, um there was a very clear moment for me when I watched this documentary about plastic bags and it just revealed that what I thought was normal 35 minutes before I pressed play on Netflix, you know, that night at three in the morning after DJing a club was suddenly not normal 35 minutes into this documentary where I'm learning about just really breaking down the concept of single use plastic. At just like using a material that is finite, meaning once you use it, it will never come back to design something that is literally intended to only be used once it's in the name. And once it's disposed, it lasts forever. Crazy. You know, just when you just see it really broken, I was like, okay, wait, hold on a second. Right. So that was this kind of moment that just opened everything up. And then from there, I was like, okay, what's what's next? So that's why I moved here to New York. So really, you made that decision literally from that documentary, because I read that in your bio. And, you know, sometimes people, you like, you make the connection, but that was a very, like a, a deliberate step. The documentary is called Plastic Bags? No, it's called uh, Bag It. Bag It. Yeah, it's not on Netflix anymore, but it's it's fun. It was approachable. It wasn't like all doom and gloom, but it was just incredibly, like, it was entertaining and informative. So it pulled me in right away. It was very effective. And that was like the Joker to my Batman. It just galvanized my sense of purpose. And, you know, what else is going on here was the follow-up questions. It felt like Hogwarts is real. It felt like something else is like really going on under the surface. Do you know? Yeah. And you would consider that a moment of heartbreak when you discovered that reality of how you are living and how we're all living? Yeah, totally. It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, people are probably going to laugh, but suddenly like the Matrix made sense, right? And then you start watching all these other documentaries about the healthcare system, about nutrition, about education, about privacy, about all of these sort of different things. And it's like, dang, like what's really going on under the surface, all this kind of stuff? And what are, what are the movements under the surface to innovate these spaces? That's why I got really galvanized by social innovation and design thinking and systems thinking and prototyping, experimenting and right, like that whole bit. That's amazing. So you started Future Meets Present mm-hmm. and that's your company. And I saw the bracelet tote in action. I love it. Can you tell us a little bit about the projects you work on at Future Meets Present and about the bracelet tote? Mm-hmm. Time to brag. Time to brag. <laughs> it's time to, you know, time to try out what's been happening these last few years. It's been totally emergent. It's like, it's my second favorite word is emergence, just creating the conditions for something to emerge, right? But just thinking about, keep pulling on that thread, that original heartbreak the very first thing I thought about doing back home was organizing a plastic bag drive mm-hmm. and just raising awareness because I had a radio show at the time and I would get on the radio and I would talk about things. I raised awareness for Syria. I once did a this stunt where I, I'm very Syrian by virtue of what is growing on my chest. There's a lot of very, very burly Syrian genes growing here. So my friend one time told me, you could probably raise a lot of money if you like shaved your chest in public. Oh my God. <laughs> so we took it one step further and I waxed my chest in public. Wow. We raised two grand in one night at the club to buy winter clothes for Syrians during the first winter after the war started, after yeah. the protest started. 
So that kind of gave me a sense of, all right, I have a platform here. I could do something with it. And the plastic bag situation kind of popped into that same wavelength. And so I would just use my platform all the time to raise awareness for things. So I wanted to organize a plastic bag drive. I mean, anyway, this first, like the beginnings of the snowman started, I started gathering these snowballs. I'm like, ah, there's some energy here. I think I could do something with this, right? So that was kind of the beginning. And then that plastic bag thread kept going when I moved here to New York and I got my degree in social design. And then one of our first projects was to design a tool to solve a social issue. And then the bracelet tote came to mind. And in short, it's like, imagine you have a bandana wrapped around your wrist for, you know, those listening, you have a bandana wrapped around your wrist, you unwrap the bandana and it's kind of the width of a, of the skinny part of a tie. And then there's a small pull tab towards the opening of the end. And then you slide the skinny part of the tie down and out pops a bag. And then you can slide the skinny part of the tie back up, wrap it back around, and then suddenly your bag is contained again. So that was the concept. I have a utility patent on one version of the design. And it's kind of stealth mode now. It's always just been something under the surface. Can I get a supply chain in order that's using recycled materials? Can it be manufactured locally? Is it super durable? Can I deliver on time? That's kind of the headspace I've been in. And that's one piece of the larger picture, which is the open invitation to think about what's normal in a sustainable future. That's really why we're here. Is the bracelet available for people to purchase? In general, it is. At the exact moment, at the time of this recording, we are completely out of inventory. Okay. Because I only make what I get. Yeah. So you collect the textiles and then you make them? Yeah. There's a resource here in New York called Fab Scrap where you can go get discarded material, upcycled fabric and things. And so any chance I get to go to Fab Scrap and find materials, I, then I send it to... I have two manufacturers, one in Virginia, one in Kentucky. Send it over to them, then we make... 40 units of one color, 13 units of another color, right? And then and then that's how we send them out. Is there a preferred fabric that you use for the tote? This is very technical. Yeah, why do you ask? <laughs> I just, I'm very curious, curious about what yeah. kinds of fabrics. It's been a lot. I've gone through, uh, man, must three, four dozen prototypes of different types of things. I know that I, elastics don't work really well. It can't be too thick because you don't want to wrap it around your wrist and it's too bulky. It has to breathe. It has to be also really durable and it has to really be pretty. I want it to be cool, like floral prints and things like that. I mean, I've seen it in action and I looked at the website. So yeah. I'd love to, you know, if they become available, we can share with our cool. audience as well, because I think it's a really cool thing to have. So other projects you want to talk about from Future Meets Present? First of all, listener, appreciate you being here. And in general, I think I'm mostly excited now about talking to you because of this. It's interesting because I'm in this space where I, I, I think... I'm seeing an integration of more parts of myself as time goes on. So I guess that's what maturation is, right? But the DJ self that's like hyping solutions up, hyping people up and making people feel like they belong, which is let's pick that pin back up right here in a moment. The designer self that's thinking technically about how to approach culture change and solutions. The Arab self, right? That's, that's bringing that part of our hospitality and our love and our warmth and our culture to the table. This 40 under 40 thing that just happened a few weeks ago. That was a really cool moment for me because when I walked across the stage to get my award, he goes, Amir Jandali is an Arab American DJ turned environmental entrepreneur. Like Arab American DJ environmental entrepreneur. Like I just heard all those in one sentence, right? I'm like, whoa, is that where I'm at right now? Like that's pretty freaking cool, right? That is. And I guess the cool part about it is the space to 
just keep integrating ourselves. And that's just what I'll share openly. And so I just really appreciate you having me on here to be all of those things at once, right? And that's a tough journey. I mean, Arab American DJ alone is like, it's a tough one, right? (laughs) To all of our listeners, it's not like, you know, the easiest pathway in our culture. Yeah, it's true. I feel really lucky to have had super supportive family, very supportive parents. And, you know, we have to give a little bit of a nod to your genes, your Gen Daddy genes. Also for people listening is the same genes of Steve Jobs, mm. the Gen Daddy family. <laughs> yeah, it's fun, true. Fun fact. It's true. We found his father on our family tree. I learned that Steve Jobs' father was the one that submitted my uncle's invitation letter in, gosh, must have been like the 50s to come to America from Syria because he was accepted into college, my dad's brother. The invitation letter that he received was from Abdel Fattah Jandali, Steve Jobs' father. When my uncle moved here, that set the precedent for my dad to move here. So I learned that like within the last year that Steve Jobs' dad was, you know, by second degree, the reason I was born in the US. Which is crazy because, you know, you carry the design genes as well. I don't know if that those two are related, but um, it's crazy I'm going to choose that they are moments. Yeah. And the, these moments, I mean, I talk about this a lot through the work at Karam and, you know, just being a writer that has written a lot about Syria, about this idea of that very thin line that separates us from being a refugee, right? These mm. moments where that letter set your whole family on the trajectory of being born in America. Whereas if you had been born in Hamas, who knows what your life would have looked like. And who knows what my life would have looked like if I wasn't American and I was in Aleppo when the war happened, because a lot of people just like us ended up on the other side of the tragedy and lives upended forever. Mm. That's so true. There was a documentary film screening earlier this year that a friend of mine hosted, and it was a documentary about Syrian refugees. And I just remember I attended and I lost it, man. I was like, exactly what you're saying. You know, had my dad not made the decisions he made in the 60s to move here, as an 18-year-old boy with no money and zero English language, I could have been one of the kids on the screen. You know, we think about that all the time. I think about that all the time. I just feel so incredibly thankful. And everything I do, just like being worthy of all these opportunities, right? Like, I don't know. I get the sense of maybe, I want to hear maybe, like, could you tell me a little bit about your memories, maybe some fun memories that you have in Aleppo? Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to kind of like, before we move forward, just on that thought, it's also not just about being grateful or that, you know, we're not one of the people that are on the other side of this, but also understanding that, you know, a kid just like you is in those camps right now. Yes. Thank you for saying that. When I was, or like a mother just like me or a kid the way I was when I was younger is sitting in Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, somewhere where they don't feel belonging, but they have all of the potential inside of them, all of the kids do. So it's a gratefulness, but also this understanding of all these people with how much do they have Mm -hmm. to offer to the world, not being able to because of their circumstance. Mm, 100%. And that just, it just offers this vision, right? Like this whole field of possibility where it's like, okay, what might be created given the access? Absolutely. Given the right conditions. (laughs) Love it. So yeah, going back, I mean, my next question was going to be about memory. So it's really fun that you asked the question to me, because for me, you know, also going back to what you were talking about in terms of the heartbreak to breakthrough moment, I love that phrase, is 
I've always been very attached to history and to memory. So almost that when it, you know, when I was thinking about talking to you, I'm like, I always think of myself as almost like the anti-futurist, <laughs> but I'm really not. But if I think about my roots of what I really love to immerse myself in is memories, my grandmother, our family history, the history of Aleppo, um, like culture, food all of these kinds of elements that make us who we are and the beautiful parts of Syria that we all love. And so when the revolution started, the war started, and we started working with kids first in camps and then in refugee schools in Rayhanle on the border in Turkey, on the border of Syria, it was a difficulty because, you know, when people are going through this very raw trauma, you're not going to be talking about the past, right? The kids were pulling me towards the future because the only way to get through this present moment that was very painful is to talk about hope and the future. And you see that a lot in refugees and communities, especially in the youth, that they will not talk about the past. They'll actually talk about what I want to be, where I'm going, what's coming next, because you can't really talk about like going back to what they just witnessed and um, what they just experienced. So I feel like I'm always like kind of caught in between that past and present, because I do also think that there's so much importance in, especially now that 12 years have almost passed. And you have so many kids that have grown up now as refugees and grown up as not knowing the Syria that we knew, that there's such an important place for memory and history and understanding, you know, our Syrianness. So as we move forward, that past, I think, is going to become even more important, but it's also so important to focus on the future as well. So that's a very long answer. And it's not really about my personal memories, but where I feel my spirit is anchored in between. And I want to ask you about what is the place of memory in the work of a futurist? That's such a good question. That's so beautiful. I think it's if we scan, I guess, just like my drawing, I suppose, if you look at like a, a geographical scan, bright spots emerge. And I suppose when we also scan our timelines, our spirits register memories of their own bright spots, you know, like moments where it felt most alive, most in sync, most aligned, most at home, whether that's a including a certain internal state where you're like, you know, at peace with something, you've surrendered to something, you've accepted something, and then it gives you a sense of alignment, of peace, of belonging, of home, whether it's around certain people, which is the ultimate conditions for that. And then even more so when you're around certain people at a certain place, those are the right conditions for that certain alignment and sense of home and belonging to emerge. And I feel really lucky to have been exposed to that from a young age. My parents prioritized it big time. In my filing cabinet, maybe I'll pull it out here in a second. I have my first passport ever. My dad saved it for me. I was five weeks old. My my passport photo, he's holding me. So my parents were very intentional about every summer from the time of my earliest memories of sending me to Humps to Syria. And other than the summers that my cousins came to visit us in New Mexico, I was there. I always remember you said something that was interesting to you earlier. And I always just remember like when I'm here, I'm the Arab. When I'm there, I'm the American. And there was something about that experience that was distinctly valuable for me in two very clear ways. The first was an unconditional sense of home and in a sense of walking around feeling like anyone you talk to, anyone, if they're making your falafel sandwich, if they're about to sell you a suit, 
and they pull out all the like 4,000 suits and lay them out on the glass countertop because they want to show you everything. And the other, the clerk is also bringing you tea while you're waiting to get your sizes right and everything. Like everyone feels like an uncle and talks to your mom as if that's their mom. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Right? Love it. I love that so much. Yeah. The best. And just walking down the, and like saying hi to people down the street and like your uncle walking by and like whatever. Your aunt is sitting on the balcony eating her strawberries and then somebody walks by and she like waves and they wave and then they keep it moving. The sounds of the honking of the taxis and one in the morning going to get a shawarma sandwich after playing basketball with your cousins. Feeling safe. Everything was cheap. It was so fun. Right. Just that openness, that that yeah. safety, that freedom. And that is one distinct, incredibly bright spot. And the other is the simultaneous feeling like I have something different here. Like, why do I get to get on a plane and go back to the United States? A place where some family members and friends, when they hear that I'm from America, I see that shift in their eye. And I noticed it from the time I was like 10 or something, right? Like from earliest real strong personal cognitive memories. Like I just noticed that energy shift. It's like when we used to go back to Syria in the summer, it's like you go there, you're there only for the fun parts, right? Mm -hmm. And you get to go, it's a tough part. And you get to go back to this place that so many people really want to be in. And it's like, oh, you have a passport, America, you can go anywhere, right? Like, and all this kind of stuff. And how it's like, in my head, it was just such a normal thing. But feeling that distinction, again, that that was probably one of the first heartbreaks, honestly, of just seeing that people that looked exactly like me, that share the same genes as me, that feel the same sense of home that I just described, suddenly can't do something that I can do just because of where they were born. That was so important for me to just realize like, whoa, not everything is equal in this place on this planet right now at this time and place, you know, two incredibly important bright spots. And I think now to answer your question, what's the role of memories in the work of a futurist It's to maintain those two bright spots throughout everything that I do and to offer a sense of belonging, whether it's in a meeting talking about our marketing strategy, whether it's at the club, which was always why DJing was important to me. It was never about the music. It's community. It's the people. I had a rule that anytime, you know, I was DJing with my laptop, it would would never be in between me and the crowd. It was always to the left. Anytime you look back at any of my videos, any of my pictures, you'll always see my laptop to the left. It was a, a sin if my laptop was, if anything was in between me and people, it was a sin. Always had to be to the left because I couldn't have anything interrupt that dialogue. It's not a monologue when you're DJing. It's not one directional. It's, it's, a, it's a dialogue. And the second it starts becoming a monologue, it's like force. It's not power. It's like just one directional, which is cool, whatever. But it's like, I want my space to feel like a conversation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when I'm playing, if I'm not fully sure where the energy is, where we want to go, I'll literally put on an extra long song and go down, like put my hood up and just be the soup for a moment. I'll get in the crowd and just like stand in the corner so no one like talks to me. And I'll just like be, and just sort of sense where we're at, what's going on over here. And then it's like, oh, okay, you know what? Yeah, I think I want to switch it up a little bit. I think I'm going to play a country song or I think I'm going to play some like reggaeton or I think I'm going to, and then I'll receive that impulse, right? And then I'll act on it. And then the whole energy will just shift and everyone will just like break loose a little bit, like grab another drink, talk to their friend. And you just notice, right? Like, cool, we reset. 
And other times it'll be a very open, honest conversation. Like I'll grab the mic. Yo, what's up, everybody? How are we doing tonight? It's good to see you again. Where are we at? What are we feeling right now? We want some hip hop vibes. What's going on? What's good? Talk to me. You know, and people will like shout at me. Like, oh, yo, I see you in the yellow. I got you. No problem. Right. And then we let it go like, like that. So it's that sense of, of belonging that I feel like I got very immersed in to my core from my source in Syria. And I carry that forward, whether it's again in a meeting, DJing, teaching a class, presenting a vision, et cetera. And simultaneously remembering that there is not equal access here across the board. And how might we create the conditions for as many people as possible to feel like they belong to the degree at which they want to, whether that's, that's in a future and it's et cetera, right? Like in a club, in a classroom. There you go. It's great. I love it. It's almost like you recreated the Ahlan wa Sahlan marhaba in the club. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, yes, hell yeah. <laughs> and you know, one concept that I was thinking about, like the concept of time, obviously, is a very important one into mm-hmm. to your work. When we're talking about the future, we're talking about sustainability, future goals. And it's related to kind of the way I think about our work at Kerem is that this investment, this long-term investment in young people, you know, our whole, the premise of our work is about investing in young people's lives today will help them, giving them the skills to be able to pursue their dreams and their passions and higher education. And, you know, the premise of this long-term investment, you know, I think you're thinking longer term than we're Mm. thinking, but one thing that, you know, I think about long-term also in the sense of being able to deal with trauma. So one idea that I've spoken to with my team in Turkey several times, and sometimes even with the kids, is the 10,000-year clock project that's in Texas. And the idea that if we're thinking about having a clock that runs for 10,000 years, like this is a project worthy of humanity and of a lot of big name investors and tech people investing in this concept and scientists working on it, that uh, in 10,000 years, none of us will be around, obviously. But more than that, it's almost like the things that are the biggest deals right now in our lives of, you know, what's happening in Syria, the war, politics in the Middle East, all of these things will not have a significance. It won't won't even be a bleep in like a 10,000 year timeline. So what actually could be of significance of, you know, having that little bit of dot of significance in the future and trying to focus on that instead of trying to focus on these things that right now occupy such a big part of our lives, but we can't change. And so I think of that long term as almost reclaiming agency when I'm able to leapfrog forward mm. and say, okay, we're not talking about what's happening today in Syria or this year in Syria or like the pandemic, but we're talking about what could be possible in 20 years mm-hmm. from now. Yep. And let's focus on that. Is that related to how you think about your work as well? Yeah, that's super cool. And it's even really nice to offer that contrast with a project that is very deep future, like very deep time. And I guess it kind of brings up just this like, I've never said this term before, but what's like the scope of usefulness, I suppose. I'm just like making that up right now. I don't know. But your time horizons can offer different value based on your scope of usefulness. And I think there's a lot of value in being able to stretch that far and just like take that really, really high step back, like you said, in terms of just thinking the really big picture and long-term duration of our overall species, that type of thing and legacy and the sort of things. I think if I were to scope in a little bit more, the way my scope of usefulness is 
again, around this word permission to think about, to offer ourselves permission to see what is our best self doing and to see simple things like, where am I living? One exercise, for example, that I like to do sometimes is just to go on street easy and just like bump up a monthly apartment rent to something that I can like super expensive, like put something up super high and just give my mind's eye permission to see where do I gravitate to when thinking about when money or anything like that is not a constraint. Am I more towards this is like a really tactical little exercise, right? But like, do I gravitate more towards something that's like a loft or more of like a renovated building or more of like a luxury apartment or whatever? Just give yourself permission to visualize mm-hmm. where is your future self? Yeah. And even things like that, or like fitness goals, or like, for example, I see my future self, he's killing it in terms of reading and writing the Quran. He's got it on lock. Present self, not so much, but future self's got it on lock. And maintaining that dialogue keeps that thread alive, keeps that possibility alive and offering the recognition of when there's something that's happening that is that opportunity expressing so you i mean i don't know if you say there are listeners my nails are painted indigo right now because i was uh just with my six-year-old niece who today's her birthday actually by the way december 2nd yes maya i was with her for thanksgiving we bond over manicures it's a lot of fun i'm here for it and while i was there with her auntie nahida showed up her teacher and we sat down and i joined her for arabic lessons right and those are the moments where like oh great this is a moment where my future meets present because those possibilities and those things we envision for ourselves, they might be somewhere in the quote unquote future, but they're inside already. And it's that same philosophy that we project from the microcosm of the individual to the macrocosm to society. And that's what my work is. Can we as a society envision what is our desired future state as it relates to climate science? Starting there, like Let's go as least controversial as possible. We know that we need to bring the parts per million of carbon emissions down. We know that we need to decarbonize. We know we need to electrify. We know we need to restore soil, et cetera, et cetera. Let's take all of that and project it into a desired state. And let's use that to what we call backcast. This is an important term. Backcasting as distinct from forecasting. Forecasting is when you project a vision of the future based on what's currently possible in the present. You look at certain fashion trends or certain whatever, and then you make projections on like, okay, what's going to be popular next season? You forecast. Backcasting is the reverse. Backcasting is when you establish a future state that is based on its own conditions and then reverse that to find the indicators of what dots are connecting to that future state. So you're reverse engineering the future. Yes. and Does that work when we're talking about the climate? I think it must. And I think it's critical because energy flows where attention goes. And if we focus on the future we fear, that's the one we bring in. If we focus on the future that we need and highlight those dots that are connecting that future, that's the one that we'll realize. That's the test of our time. This is called the decisive decade. That is the test of this moment in time. Super interesting. Yeah. And I'm constantly finding further evidence on why this is powerful. I'm reading this book called uh, Atomic Habits right now. Yeah, I love it. So good, right? Yeah, James Clear is amazing. Do you remember the part where he's talking about uh, the amount of sensory receptors we have in our body? No. So I bookmarked this and I'm like 90% certain on these numbers. So please don't like fully, but it's, um, we have 11 million sensory receptors in our in our body 
10 million of them are dedicated to the sense of sight, of vision. Yeah. And if we know that our consciousness has trouble distinguishing from a vision we see in the external world and the internal world, it receives both as data. That to me indicates an incredible potential, transformative potential for positive future visioning. When you sense that something's possible, I have a vision board behind me. And right here, that is a picture of an apartment on 33 Washington Street, an apartment that's rent is completely outrageous. Nothing that I can afford right now. I'll say that much, right? And the important part is when I look at that apartment and I look at this apartment that's like an $8,000 monthly rent, right? I just bumped it up. What's important to me isn't the possibility that, I mean, it's not that apartment itself, but it's, can I shift my own internal state to a place where that number is just as approachable as a $1,000 rent? That's free. That shift, that contextual shift is free. And from there, once you shift there, then the plan follows to build up to that. And whether I want to end up spending $8,000 a month on rent, that's to be D, not really. But do I want to be in a place where I could afford it and therefore do so many other things with that money? Absolutely. And that's the power of future visioning, right? And then yeah. the, those shifts, whether you're talking about a person or society. So I want to ask you, as somebody who went to the School of Visual Arts, you know, Debbie Millman is somebody we've talked about before, and she has that whole designing your future life exercise. Did you ever do that with her? Or did you ever hear about that? She has this whole thing, right? That you actually think about your life five or 10 years in the future. And she's taught this course before. And you actually like visualize everything in detail and you kind of set it Mm -hmm. aside. And as you move forward, she did that for herself several times and coming back and realizing, you know, like so many of the things that she'd written just happened. Obviously, they don't just happen because you're working towards the thing that you're actually putting down on paper and planning for yourself. So we're not talking about manifesting and kind of creating the things that are magical, but it's really about kind of putting things down in a concrete manner and then working towards them. Mm -hmm. I kind of see those two things as one and the same. You know, however you want to brand it, the harder you work, the harder you manifest. The harder you work, the luckier you get. The more you dream, the more you follow that dream, the more you get like... I'm kind of at a point now, Lena, where I don't see a difference. Visions and things that come to me and things just when I give my mind's eye permission to see, I just take all of that as data. I take it as, as instructions, not just data, instructions. I have to show you. Show this me. right here. The braver we are, the luckier we get. God bless. <laughs> yes, there it is. So I think like this is related. I mean, the next thing I wanted to ask you about, I do want to go back to... The concrete stuff, the things that you know, your Mm -hmm. expertise. I want to make sure we talk about this before we move to the rapid fire questions, which is what are the most important things people need to know right now about the climate and sustainability? (laughs) And because I know people talk about this all the time. So what are the most important things we need to know now? And what are the most important things that people can do to help? Because there's also this argument of, is this a systems change? Mm. Do individuals actually have a role in really reducing the environmental damages Mm. that are happening to the planet? Because we constantly hear about, okay, I can stop using plastic bags, but these massive corporations are doing a hundred times more damage than I could ever do with mm. whatever, whatever my impact or carbon footprint is. So how do we rationalize these two things? And what are the concrete things that people should be doing right oh, now? Beautiful. So good. One of these days, I'm going to make a montage of my answers to this question and how like <laughs> ridiculously different <laughs> they've become over time. 
but I think I'm at a point now where, again, like evolution and maturation professionally is all about higher orders of pattern recognition, right? Like you get to a point where you see enough patterns where you're like, okay, I, I can recognize a higher order here. And I think I can answer that with a really good sense of clarity. First response to your question is, yes, individuals absolutely have a responsibility. Is all of the responsibility on individuals? No. Is all the responsibility on individuals that make up organizations? Yeah. Organizations are nothing but people, cybernetic networks of people that are making choices. So I find a lot of potential and possibility and value there. So can't discount the power of the individual, especially when an individual is part of an organization. That's my opening statement. But take a step back. What I think is the most important thing, and I talked about this with my students a lot, and I was surprised at how much um, interest this got. We spent three classes just on this alone. What I think is really important for people to realize and to understand is let's demystify the sources of emissions just for a moment. And I think we'll find peace of mind here when we think about this. It's unanimously agreed upon that there are five to six main economic sectors that are the sources of all of the greenhouse gas emissions around the world. And they are not in particular order, but energy generation, creating the electrons that are flowing through all of our cables, powering our phones and, and computers, et cetera. Energy generation, electricity, food and agriculture. So land and food and agriculture, that's soil health, that's factory farming, that's plant-based diets, et cetera. All those things, that's the second category. Third category is transportation, how we move everything around, how we move ourselves around, planes, boats, trains, buses, subways, cars, semi-trucks. Then we have industry, and that's just stuff. That's like cement, concrete, plastics, electronics, glass, steel. And the last one is buildings, our built environment, the places where humans spend most of their time, the materials that go into buildings, their efficiency, the energy required to heat and cool them. Then there's another catch-all category for other, and that represents things like methane or like leaky pipes or more like infrastructural issues. Yeah. So basically at a high level, what we're really looking at here is energy, transportation, food and agriculture, buildings, and industry. Name something that you touch in your day-to-day life that doesn't fall under one of those categories. Yeah, everything. Everything. So I think just pause there for a moment and realize that that's the demystification of the sources of greenhouse gas emissions. Let's like hold that for a second suddenly like the contrast offers some clarity. And then from there, you can get a lot more granular. And there's so many wonderful resources. I'll point to one called Speed and Scale. If you've ever heard of the OKR framework, Objectives and Key Results, Mm -hmm. businesses use this, Google pioneered it. What is the objective? And then what are the key results to lead up to that objective? So Speed and Scale offers OKRs for each of those sectors. Okay. So for example, in the transportation sector, an objective might be, to decarbonize or make all cars electric by a certain year is the objective. A key result is electric cars must be the same or lower in price Mm -hmm. to internal combustion engines. And that must be true by 2030, for example, right? So then you see the high level climate target and then it breaks down to the actual objectives and key results. With that information, you can learn to recognize progress, in the news. And suddenly these articles that you're reading are not just fragmented pieces of information, but they're contextualized in the larger picture. And that story is the story that we like to tell as those are indicators of what it looks like when the future meets present. The future is the one in which all of those OKRs are realized. And these are all small indicators of that, the evidence of that 
direction and that trajectory. So I'll point to speed and scale. I'll point to another resource called Drawdown that has actually articulated all of the solutions needed within those five sectors that once implemented will reverse global warming, not reverse climate change, but will help draw emissions down to zero, which is the goal. That's why they're called Drawdown. The solutions are available. We know what needs to be done. A lot of them need to be scaled. A lot of them need to be improved. A lot of them, whatever. But the baseline is there. So let's just take a moment of comfort in that. Because so much of what, like, what I see, because I don't like follow this very closely, and I get it, like you said, in fragments, is that there's nothing that's going to change. Like, this is actually what I would always argue against during the war in Syria is that people would look at this and be like, "This is too complicated. Yeah. It's too much." <laughs> that's how I act towards climate change. Yeah, in that it's just so overwhelming. My impact is not going to have that big of a difference. Mm. And so, not that just throw it all away, but just that like it's. Not, not there's nothing that's going to be able to do the drawdown. Right. And I don't blame you for feeling that way. And again, energy flows where attention goes. And that's the dominant narrative today is that scarcity, right? And that's what makes me so sad because there's so many people busting their asses to innovate breakthroughs in all these, these places that need it. I'll give you one thing to hold on to. This year, for the first time, renewable energy in the United States will outperform coal. This is the first time that's ever happened. Wow. All right. So we will share these resources and I will actually, I'm pledging now here on air to look at this and take action in my own life in some way. Okay. So now let's answer that, right? And we can like wrap up here. We'll make this succinct. The individual actions that are most important and most powerful on an individual level at the household, if there's one thing that you do, I'll say compost, compost your food scraps. That is the one biggest thing that people can do just like tangibly outside of like politics and voting and that sort of stuff, like actually with your hands, compost. Okay. Not composting sends food to landfills where it creates methane, which is way more of a potent gas than, than carbon. It Methane is it's uh, more powerful at trapping heat. So the diversion of food waste away from landfill is um, incredibly important and very, very beneficial. So compost, that's the one. Two, Be active in your work, in your job, in your company. That's where an individual becomes a system at your work. And what you need to start asking for, and this is what I'll say, over the next few years, this is what we will start seeing, whether you're asking for it or someone else in your company is asking for it. You will see people asking their leadership teams for emissions disclosures. What's our company's carbon footprint? You want to seek language that reflects the following. Companies that are seriously committed about decarbonizing their footprint will speak about scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. When you start seeing companies speaking that language, you know they're getting a certain level of nerdiness, and that's good. So start there. Demand emissions disclosures from your executive team. Okay. Let's leave it there. Yes. Let's leave it there. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Everybody do that. Let's do it. Compost um, and disclosures. We're going to be wrapping up with our rapid fire. I mean, I could talk to you forever. And <laughs> definitely, I think we need to bring you on for a part two. For now, we wanted to go through the questions I usually ask our guests. And so the first one is complete this sentence. Home is where? I actually have it on a plaque. Home's in your heart. <laughs> home is in your heart. I love that. If you had to leave your home and take one belonging with you as a memory, what would it be? Uh, my journal. Definitely. My journal and my pen that has four different colors. <laughs> so that's such a designer, the designer in you. <laughs> yeah. 
What's one piece of advice you would give to a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place? Mm. Yes, I would say be that belonging for someone else. Beautiful. Give us a list of three unexpected places that people must visit in your hometown. One of your bright spots. <laughs> Here's one of my bright spots. In my hometown, yeah, go to New Mexico. Go anywhere and ask for green chili. That's the first thing. And go into the woods when it rains because the whole place smells like a campfire. And then enjoy the amount of beautiful stars that are visible in the desert. I love that. That's so beautiful. No breaking bad tour. No breaking. <laughs> sure. That's <laughs> item four. <laughs> what dish tastes like home to you? Bazaliotas. My mom's peas and rice. Oh my God. That's, that's a very important Syrian dish. So good. <laughs> so good. It is so good. So you spoke about a couple of books in our conversation, but um, the last question is we always ask our guests, hmm. what's a book or a set of books that you love and usually recommend to your friends to read? My most gifted book is called Anatomy of the Spirit, and it's written by Caroline Mice, and she's a medical intuitive and talks about the energetic properties of healing, and it's so perfect. We will check that out. I don't know that book, so we'll check that out, and we'll add Atomic Habits and Aleph by Paulo Coelho. And Speed well. and Scale and Drawdown. There you go. That's five. Okay. Perfect. Yes. That's a great list. Great list. Thank you so much, Ahmed. I really enjoyed our conversation together. Yeah, Lena, this is great. I'm so glad we've been recording this whole thing. <laughs> My conversation with Ahmed about his unique understanding of belonging reminded me of a conversation I had with Ala, a student at Karam House, Istanbul. Originally from Aleppo, Ala doesn't remember the last time he belonged. But what he does have instead is a strong sense of community. It really goes to show how fluid the definition of belonging can be. Listen in. Hi, Ala. Welcome to Belongings. Hi, Lina. Thank you for having me here. I'm so excited to talk with you today about your journey and about all of the th kinds of things that you've been doing in your studies and the kinds of things you've been doing at Karam House. So we'll dig in with the questions. To start, I wanted to ask you, where are you now? Where do you live? And can you tell us a little bit about your journey from Syria to Turkey? Yeah, sure. First of all, my name is Ala. I've been living in Turkey for the past 10 years. I originally come from Aleppo, and we came from Syria at the end of 2012. And we immediately went to Istanbul. We've been living here for uh, approximately 10 years. I wanted to ask you about what you think about the word belonging. How do you think about that? Actually, when it comes to belonging, it's been something I've been asking myself for a long time. But uh, I would say it's the place or the feeling where you know that no one looks at you in a differential way, where you're basically treated like you're no different not treated in a hatred or pettiness way, kind of, and where you basically just don't feel like you're the stranger in the room. Actually, I'd say I never felt like I belonged someplace. And honestly, when I think about it, when I think, where can I belong for? I don't feel that uh, there is any place that could satisfy that feeling for now. 
Is there something about in your answer talking about not being treated differently or not being, you know, noticed by people on the street? Is this something that you've experienced in your journey as being a displaced person? Yeah, actually, like as a person who lives in Turkey, I've been seeing all kinds of people, not only Turkish people. I've been seeing a lot of different nationalities here. The thing that I hate when I tell someone that I'm Syrian or that I'm a refugee in this country, it bothers me so much being treated differently, even if it's to my own good. I hate seeing someone feeling sad about me or someone treating me in a hatred way because of things that they may be so in the confused social media we're facing at this moment. I've been seeing that my whole life, especially in high school. Now I'm, I moved to the university. I'm not facing that that much because people are kind of more accepting for yeah. other people. So it's getting better in university. Yeah, it's getting better. I like that I'm equal to everybody there. There is all kinds of different people around me and we're getting along together. I think that's also, you know, just to give you some perspective from my end, you know, I have children that are in high school and I think high school in general for all people that age is a very difficult age. And obviously if you are a displaced person and you are coming out of another country and are in a new place and you are a refugee, I know that that makes things a lot harder, but a lot of teenagers don't feel that they belong in this time wherever they are and you do start to find that sense of belonging of where you're supposed to be in university when things are going well so i just wanted to say that to kind of give you a little bit of perspective that this could be a more of a universal feeling as well yeah i totally agree with what you're saying it's happening to a lot of people but i think we should find ways to make these teenagers more acceptable to this condition and make them know better how to deal with it. Absolutely. And the, your experience is unique and it is special. So this is not to take away from what you're feeling. It is a, what a lot of people are feeling. And for every person, this is a challenge and it's an experience in itself. And I completely agree with you on needing to find a better way for people to belong and to find acceptance in society. So do you think that your journey through Karam House, was that something that helped in this piece of finding belonging? It helped me so much because in high school, I didn't have any friends at the beginning. I still didn't get any friendships there. So going to Karam House, seeing people that actually I can go along with, and it was actually a community that I wanted to be in, but I didn't know how. It was a great coincidence in my life, joining Karam House. What were the kinds of things that you did there? So we worked in very different projects. Every project had its own special thing. I was so excited about that. I remember the first project I worked in was building shelters for animals, but at the same time, making it involved with technology. So from what I remember, I made a dog house that could use the solar power to give the dogs the food and the water they need. And my favorite project that I worked on was making a drone that could actually fly in space where astronauts and people who work in space discovery can use it. 
It was very exciting working on that because like we made that drone from A to Z. We didn't get any mechanical parts that could help us. It was totally our work. You can't see me, but I'm smiling so much because <laughs> I love these two projects. And I think that the shelter project, I remember that project and it's very powerful because that's kind of what everybody's talking about these days is about how do we actually find different ways of harnessing the energy, like solar energy and being able to do these kinds of innovative projects, as well as having this idea for a drone. I remember seeing the videos of the drones actually flying the drones that everybody built. And it's just incredible to have watched this. And I'm so happy that you were part of that. Thank you. It was a great experience. Like, um, I can't even imagine that it's been two years since I made that drone. It feels like yesterday I'm still programming it, still drawing the shape of it and cutting it and working on it. So now you're studying engineering in university, correct? <sighs> yeah, I'm studying mechatronics engineering, which is uh, a combination of mechanics, electronics and computer engineering. Is that something that you had wanted to study? Is that what you were planning to do when you were in high school? Actually, what I've been into my whole life was film industry and filmmaking, but I was also into technology so much. So I actually still want to pursue my filmmaking career in a different way, but it felt kind of safe way to study since the degree wouldn't be that much of help. So I just decided to study something that has to do with technology since I already like it, but I still want to pursue my filmmaking career in some different way. Why filmmaking? It's a way that you can show the art and the imagination that you have in your mind and showing your perspectives about life in a way that could entertain and affect the viewer or the attender in an emotional way, which could lead to a very important changes in our modern life. This is incredible. If, do you see the connection or a connection between mechatronics or technology and storytelling through filmmaking? Do you see these, these pathways converging? I've been asking myself this question to try and make some kind of combination between them. I still didn't figure that out, but I think it's very important because I don't want to feel that I wasted my years studying engineering. And at the same time, I don't want to give up my dreams about filmmaking. So I'm really trying my best to figure out a way that both of them can work together in a way that would actually satisfy me. I have no doubt that those two journeys can connect and you'll be able to find a way to connect them because it is very powerful to be able to pursue storytelling through film. And there is connections between that and the kind of technology and engineering. So I hope that you'll be able to find that through your studies as well as through opportunities in the future. And maybe we'll be able to figure out a way to help you on that journey. <laughs> Thank you very much. So before we go into the rapid fire questions, I wanted to ask you to do the exercise I ask all of our guests to do, which has to do with mapping your home. This is a 
thing that we do every time in every episode of Belongings. So the idea is, is that if you could draw a map of home, it could be a floor plan, it could be a map, it could be a representation of a home in the past, in the present, or even in the future. And then you will tell us a story about your home through your drawing. And we can take about five minutes for you to draw. Yeah, sure. I'm going to begin working on it right now. Did you draw anything? I actually drew people standing or walking on a shore. And like all these people kind of found a way to walk together and not feeling strange with each other. And all these people were kind of similar in some ways, which made them kind of have the same matters in this life. And I feel like it's something needs more explanation or different ways to express. So do you think that you're trying to talk about home as being a community? Yeah, I guess so. So I'm going to be going into our rapid fire questions, which are the questions I ask every guest in the episodes. The first question is, complete this sentence. Home is where? I would say it's a place where no one looks at you in any differential way, where you're basically treated like you're no different and where you just feel like you belong to everybody and you're not the stranger. Absolutely. The second question is, if you had to leave your home and take one belonging with you as a memory, what would it be? I would definitely get our photo album. Do you have any of your photo albums from Syria? No, and that's the thing that's bothering me because we left all of them in Syria. I can't even reach out my childhood pictures. Most of them are just lost. We can't even find them. I would say if the time returns, I would definitely get them the first of everything because these are kind of the memories that you have left. Yeah. And I'm the same. All of our photo albums are also in Aleppo still. (laughs) Yeah. What's one piece of advice that you would give a young refugee trying to find belonging in a new place? I think anyone who's moving to a new place should look at it in a perspective of a new adventure. Maybe a new journey beginning, try to understand the culture and try to fit in in your own way, respect their traditions and lifestyles, and try to get you some friends. I think the most important part is being there in your own way and at the same time trying to respect everything that this community has to offer you. That's such a powerful answer, Ala. It's, you know, something that looking at these experiences as an adventure is really positive and powerful, as well as looking at how do you fit in, but also hold on to what you have. That's great advice for, like you said, anybody moving to a new place. My next question is, if you could give us a list of three places that people must visit in your hometown. Well, the most famous place in Aleppo, where I come from, is Aleppo Castle. And I can't actually think about any other places, but Aleppo is considered the oldest city in the world. So you can basically recognize a lot of civilizations all around. And that's the most thing that I like in my city. Spoken like a true Halabi. (laughs) 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 What dish tastes like home to you? 
there is this dish from my hometown and it's called chiri meat. And it may seem a weird combination between these two, <laughs> but like seriously, everybody should try it. It's my favorite. I love it too. And we can even link to a picture or a recipe when we post this podcast episode. We should. We absolutely should. It's a special cherry. It's a cherry just coming from northern Syria that's very sour to make this dish. Exactly. My last question is if you have a book or books that you've recommended to your friends often that you think our audience should know about. Yeah. Actually, I'm, I wasn't a huge reader, but there is this book that I can't get off my head for years. And I literally recommend it to everyone I see. It's called Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami, which is my favorite author. Like this book is my favorite for multiple reasons. It basically talks about a 16 years old child who just leaves everything in his life and goes to unknown places, works at a library, and there he would learn about life more than ever. Like, I would actually recommend any book by Haruki Murakami. I love how he explains the little things about life, how he talks about sadness, happiness, being lost, and basically the human emotions. That's a wonderful recommendation. I haven't read the book, but I've heard about it so much from friends. And now you've inspired me to read it and uh, read more of his work. You should actually read it. <laughs> I want yeah. you to read it. I will. I, I will take this recommendation and we will also share it with the guests. All right. I've read one book by Haruki Murakami, which is what I talk about when I talk about running, which is kind of a memoir, but it's all, maybe a yeah. group of essays. And it's very, very powerful because as somebody who I, I write a lot, it really helped me think about what his process is as a writer. And I've started a couple of his books, but I haven't gotten through them, but I'm going to go to Kafka on the Shore and read it. This guy is so wonderful in a way that makes you feel so warm in your life. Like I'm reading this book called uh, The Wind Up Bird Chronicle. And like Murakami is just talking about a guy cooking spaghetti for two or three pages. And you actually love the details that he's giving and make you feel like you're kind of making a really big deal about life. It shouldn't be this way. Mm. I've been only enjoying him writing about the people around him and how he sees them and what kind of outfits they wear. He's so wonderful. You're talking about the details and that's totally coming from somebody who is interested, almost like you're looking at it like a film or looking at it like a story with all the details. So it's not surprising that you would like this author and all of his work. Well, Alat, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed speaking with you. I wish you all the best of luck in your university studies and I hope to be in contact in the future to see what you're doing. Thank you very much, Lena. It's been a pleasure. I really wanted to say everything that I did. And yeah, I'm hoping that we can do some new things in the future. Yeah, and hopefully we can see each other soon in Turkey. <laughs> Inshallah. Inshallah. Thanks for listening to Belongings. I'm your host, Lina Sergi Attar. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it to be meaningful. This episode of Belongings was produced by Rama Majzoub and Noor Al-Ghrawi. Episode research by Ghania Chowdhury. Podcast artwork by Suleiman Faour. Music is Inni Mneeh by Mashru' Layla. Please follow, rate, and review Belongings wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
You can also follow Belongings on Instagram at Belongings Podcast. If you would like to support building a sense of belonging, community, and well-being for refugee youth, please visit karamfoundation.org. Thank you, everyone. See you next time.